Jesus said in Revelation 1.19, I want you to write what you have seen. He had seen Jesus glorified. And write the things which are the church age, which John was in and which we are in here tonight, still in the church age. And then he said, I want you to write the things which will take place after these things. That'll pick up in chapter 4. And i got to tell you, I think we're going to be in heaven before Christmas. <laughs> Amen? Either in our study or just there. Either way works great for me. But we're in the church age, in our study, and in reality. But in the book of Revelation, two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, that cover the church age. Seven letters, one church. One age. We've looked at Ephesus and Smyrna. But before we go on to Pergamos, I need to pause again at Jesus' teaching in the kingdom parables. So go to Matthew 13, and then we will end up over in Revelation chapter 2. Matthew 13 to start tonight. Now I've told you, Jesus told seven kingdom parables. In Matthew 13, followed by an eighth mini-parable that describes what he's just done. The the parable of the scribe who brings out of his treasures things new and things old, which is the revelation, right? Old things all the way up to chapter 20. Things that have been talked about, prophesied, new things, chapters 21 and 22. But there are seven specific parables, beginning with the parable of the sower. And we saw how that connects... To Ephesus, because Ephesus is the love-left church. And the parable of the sower is all about the heart. And then on Sunday, we looked at suffering Smyrna, but we didn't attach the next parable to it. But the second letter, the letter to Smyrna, parallels the second kingdom parable. So look at it, verse 24 of chapter 13. Let me just ask the Lord one more time to bless the study. Lord, be with us. Boy, we've learned down through the years never to even begin to read Scripture without asking, Holy Spirit, that you would give revelation, that you would teach us. So we invite you to do that tonight. Lord, I specifically ask that you will keep our minds sharp and clear. We've done this lame turning the clocks back thing, and so it feels later to us. I I pray that you will give us insight and excitement even, Father, in the study. Keep us engaged. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so picking up in verse 24 of Matthew 13, the second parable he tells, the second kingdom parable, he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good gluten-free seed in your field? (laughs) How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go gather them up? And he said, No. While you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then he explains this parable, this parable that parallels suffering Smyrna. Why would that parallel Smyrna? Listen closely to Jesus' explanation. 
He left the crowds. Down in verse 36, if you drop down there, He left the crowds and went into the house, and His disciples came to Him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And He said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So that's Jesus Himself. And the field is, note this, the world, not the church. The field is the world. And then He goes on and He says, The good seed, well, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them in the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is a parable of the sons, I would say, the citizens of the kingdom. Sons of the kingdom are citizens of the kingdom. Those who will go into the kingdom. That's twofold, by the way. That's both the church having been caught up and now returning with Jesus to rule and reign in that kingdom, but it's also believing Israel. Sons of the kingdom, the promises of the kingdom, are for Israel. Historically, Hebraically, throughout the Jewish scriptures, the promise of the kingdom. So the sons of kingdom, Israel at the end of tribulation, the church coming back to rule and reign. But these sons of the kingdom, wheat, are living in the field, the world. And Jesus says, while you live there, tares will be sown. So even as the church grows, as citizens of the kingdom grow up in the field, currently the world, so will the tares. And sometimes they're going to look like church people. Because tares and wheat look exactly the same. The only difference is tares bear no fruit. So they will look like you. They'll be with you. They'll be next to you. In the world... Sons of the kingdom, daughters of the kingdom, people of the kingdom are in the world. Praise the Lord. So are the sons of the evil one. And you know, for all the elections and politics and loyalties and sides and political persuasions and parties, blue trickles and red trickles, You know, at the end of the night, last night, people were sitting there going, well, what really happened there? Nobody conquered anything, and now we're just a divided government. What's going on here? And there were people upset about it, and there were people talking about it. And of course, they took off today. Everybody's talking about the election. Brothers and sisters, never forget this. We are citizens of another kingdom. A better kingdom. I love America. I am thankful for my freedoms. But I am a citizen of the coming kingdom. That's my loyalty. And you know what happened on election night to change that? Nothing. (laughs) Republicans could have lost everything. I'm still a citizen of the kingdom. We could be an entirely blue country. I wouldn't be blue. (laughs) I'm a citizen of the kingdom. And I would not end up with a red face at the end of any election cycle. I'm a citizen of the kingdom. And the kingdom is coming. And every follower of Jesus Christ knows that, hey, we're living in the world. And there's wheat and there's tares. That's the deal. That's the way it is. That's the way it is going to be. 
What's interesting is at the end of this, Jesus said, verse 40, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. I want to tell you something that Polycarp said. I didn't share this on Sunday. Remember Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna? The one who was burned at the stake for his faith, refusing to recant? When he was standing there before the proconsul of Smyrna, he was told once again, Don't you understand? If you don't recant, old man, we will burn you with fire. And he replied, The fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished. There is a fire you know nothing about. The fire of judgment to come and of eternal punishment. The fire reserved for the ungodly. There is a fire for the sons of the evil one. Those who rebel against Christ. There is a fire. And Polycarp warned against that. So we see in the parable of the wheat and tares a picture of Smyrna, the suffering church. The church that was in the world planted good wheat by good seed. But what happens to that church is it's surrounded by darkness and evil. As the church grows into the coming kingdom, evil grows around, alongside, begins to grow in, and literally starts to infiltrate the church itself. So we come to the third kingdom parable, which parallels the third letter that we're about to look at tonight, and that is the church at Pergamos. If you look at verse 31 of Matthew 13, he presented another parable to them. This is now the third parable, matching the third letter. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And man, that seems idyllic, bucolic, pastoral. You can almost imagine yourself lying under that tree, just listening to those sweet birds singing. Until they start to drop on you and peck at you and cause problems for you. I'm not anti-bird, but I can tell you the birds in this parable are evil birds. We had a few in the barn years ago. The ones that were always attempting to white out my sermon notes. Evil birds. This parable falls right in the middle of a triad of warning. What is the danger here? Don't miss this. Jesus, with these three parables, has just made a mustard sandwich. A mustard sandwich. He starts with the wheat and the tares. He ends with the leaven and the loaf, and in between, the mustard seed. It's a mustard sandwich. And the problem is, in this next stage of warning, it's an ill-advised recipe. It's a picture of an unhealthy blend, or a spread, if you will, of the church and the state in the world. Welcome to Pergamos. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Jesus says to John and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, right? Now, if your Bible say Pergamum, that's an Anglicized version of it. The actual Greek word is Pergamos. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamos. Two words put together, compound word. The last part is gamos. And there are two ways of... of Defining this word or translating it, both have the word gamos in it, which is marriage. Marriage. But it's either per gamos or it's pergos gamos. 
Depends on how you're looking at it. Per gamos, per means opposed. So the translation would be opposed to marriage. That would be the name of this city, of this church. And prophetically, it fits the epoch in the church age that this designates. I'll show you that. Pergamos, objectionable marriage, opposed to marriage. Or it could be pergos gamos, put together as pergamos. And that means elevated. Pergos means elevated. So elevated marriage. Objectionable marriage, elevated marriage, and both fit the prophetic picture here. Pergamos. Pergamos sat perched on a large conical mount. So if you can imagine, if you start in Ephesus on the Aegean Sea in southwestern Turkey and head right up the coast, about 35 miles, you end up in Smyrna. Go then inland 15 miles and you end up at Pergamos. Pergamos was on a large mount that overlooked back toward the Aegean Sea. You could see the beautiful sparkling blue Aegean from Pergamos. It was high in its elevation. In fact, that makes sense then why the founders of Pergamos would name it Elevated Marriage. Hey, it's a beautiful place. It's elevated. We're going to marry ourselves to this land. Arriving there at Pergamos, though, we not only come to this new city where another church of the seven resides, but we come to a new epoch in the church age. We move from the Apostolic Fathers, Ephesus, 35 to 100 A.D., to suffering Smyrna as we studied in depth on Sunday morning about 65 all the way up to 312 A.D. But something happens in 312. And that's where we come to what I would call spousal Pergamus. Spousal Pergamus, 312 to about 606 A.D. That's the prophetic time frame. And when I said you got to stay with me on this, we're talking about Pergamos now in 95 AD when John is told by Jesus to write the letter to the actual historical church of Pergamos. But we're also talking prophetically. That is to Pergamos and what Pergamos represents in 312 to 606. And that is the church of the objectionable or the church of the elevated marriage. Church of the objectionable marriage or the elevated marriage. Either way, it is a match truly made on earth. The church has often sought to elevate its position by aligning with the culture. By aligning with the world. Listen, Jesus strongly objects. John 17, 15, he prayed, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That's why I began showing you we are citizens of the kingdom, not of this world, not even of this country. That is not my primary citizenship. I'm an American citizen. I love my country, but I love the kingdom more. And I will always stand for the kingdom over this country or any country in the world. Jesus does not want us to be married to culture, married to a country, married to the planet. And note this, the component of Christ's character. As we come toward Pergamos, the elevated or objectionable marriage, we start to hear why it's objectionable as we see what we've called the component of Christ's character. Remember, there's one in every letter. So here for Pergamos... To the angel in the church of Pergamos write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. I'm not sure that's the aspect of Christ's character that I want to see first. (laughs) 
What does a sword do? Well, this sword is the ronthea we talked about. It's the long sword. It's the javelin. It's the sword for war. This is not a little scalpel for surgery. This is a sword for cutting, for dividing. Even in our marriage ceremonies, we have that statement. If anyone has any reason that these should not be joined in holy matrimony, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. Well, Jesus is speaking. And as he opens his mouth to speak to Pergamos, the elevated marriage, he opens his mouth with a sword. Now in his style in these letters, before he begins to object to this marriage, he does give, number two, a confidence-boosting commendation. A commendation. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. How do you like them apples? I know where you live. Pergamos, church at Pergamos, I understand where you are situated. You're on Satan's doorstep. Pergamos was an interesting city. And the more you study it, the more you find there is to know and understand about Pergamos. It was not the commercial city of a, of a Smyrna or of an Ephesus, but it far surpassed both in terms of culture, knowledge and education, in terms of the arts, and in terms especially of spiritual and religious fervor. Pergamos, it had a 200,000 volume library in it. Interesting, back in those days, you know, people look back to the first century and they say, ah, what could they know? Well, they had 200,000 volumes in their library. How many books do you have at home? And in that 200,000 volume library, they began to replace papyrus texts. Papyrus is that paper, paper made from, from leaves, and so it would dry out and crumble ultimately. Well, they replaced it with a different kind of paper that they developed right there in Pergamos. In fact, it's called the Pergamina Charta, which literally is translated what we call parchment. Parchment was developed there in Pergamos. It's untanned animal skins, and they realized you would take these animal skins and you could write on these, and they would last a lot longer, far longer, than the old papyrus paper. And so they developed that there in Pergamos. They were educated. They were artistic. But they were religious, big time. Incredibly spiritual, the city of Pergamos. It housed temples to Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, the god of wine. The, the Pergamons, Pergamonians, the, the people of Pergamos, they believed that Zeus was born there. But that's where Zeus grew up. And on that Acropolis, overlooking all the rest of Pergamos, there was a great altar. In fact, it was considered by some one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was an altar of Zeus. 115 feet wide, 110 feet deep. This altar had a 65 foot long staircase right up the middle of it. It had wings that came out on the sides of it. These colonnades that went up as those 65 feet went to the top of the altar. And around the base there was a 370 foot marble frieze depicting battles of gods and giants. All being fought out there. And and again, some of that, that artistry and the sculpture, absolutely magnificent. 
Some of it's still on display in different museums around the world. And on top of the altar of Zeus were a copious amount of statues. And there right in the middle was the fire altar. I'll come back to that in just a minute. In addition to all of this spirituality, Caesar worship was huge. Now we talked about Caesar worship there in Smyrna. Why Polycarp was uh, martyred. He wouldn't offer a pinch of incense to Caesar Tiberius. Well, 50 years prior to the temple to Tiberius in Smyrna, the people of Pergamos already erected the first temple to Augustus Caesar. Three temples actually, to Roma, to the spirit of Rome, and then to Augustus himself. And worship in Pergamos as in Smyrna was required worship. This is all important background, not just trying to sprinkle history on you tonight. Pergamos was also one of two seats, according to Alexander Hislop in his book The Two Babylons. Pergamos and Rome were the two seats of the root of all paganism That is the Babylonian mystery religion, which we will talk more about. Pergamos was also famous for another so-called deity. Now remember, Jesus looked at Pergamos and He said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's where Satan lives. That's where he holds residence, where he holds court. Why would He say this? Well, all of the above reasons that I've already given you, but there's one more. There was a unique temple there a famous temple, actually, for another so-called deity, a deity whose name was Asclepios. The Asclepian temple was actually a medical facility, for you see, Asclepios was the symbol of medicine and healing. The god, if you will, of medicine and healing. And the symbol of Asclepios is a serpent entwining a staff. Have you ever seen it? It's still the symbol of medicine today. I remember going to uh, my dentist appointments in Santa Ana, California. It was brutal. We lived in Mission Viejo, so it was about a 30-minute drive up to Santa Ana. Back in those days, now it's about uh, seven and a half hours. But So we had a 30-minute drive up there, and that's where my dentist and my doctor was, because we didn't really have that when, my, when I was growing up as a kid in Mission Viejo. There wasn't much there. So we'd drive up to Santa Ana, 30 minutes of sheer terror, because I knew I was going to the dentist. But we would get there, and every time we got there, the parking lot, there was a huge white building, and on the side of it, Asclepios. That frightened me then, and well, now I understand why. The Asclepion was a medical facility. What happened was people would come to Pergamos from all over the world to get medical treatment. You'd come to the Asclepion, and you would enter through an underground tunnel. If you were approved, if you were dying, they wouldn't let you in because they didn't want to have any reputation for people dying under the watchful eye of the serpent medical god. So you had to at least be healthy enough that you weren't going to die. If you fit that description, they would bring you in this underground tunnel. And when you came in, they they gave you a sedative to drink, put you in one of the rooms of the dormitories there in the Asclepion, and you would lie there all night long while non-venomous snakes slithered over you. And and they said Asclepios, the, the god of medicine, would reveal to you in your dreams what your diagnosis was supposed to be which is about as accurate as modern medicine is today, I think. Anyway, we have another name for that serpent, don't we? The Bible tells us, Revelation 12, 9, the serpent of old is called the devil and Satan. And Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So for any of these reasons, Pergamos is the seat of Satan. But Jesus planted His church right there. I love that. 
God has no problem going head to head with the devil. God has no problem dropping Christians into very difficult locations and planting His church because truth always will prevail. It did in the days of Antipas. My faithful one, my, my witness. King James, he says, just my faithful witness, Antipas. Antipas was martyred in Pergamos in 92 A.D. We don't know a whole lot about Antipas. I had to dig for this one, but there is some interesting information to be found in tradition and in history. Antipas himself refused to worship Caesar. We only find his name here in the Bible in Revelation chapter 2 in Pergamos. We read the name of Antipas. He was martyred here. Tradition tells us that he was a dentist and then ultimately became bishop in Pergamos, assigned there by the apostles themselves. And again, Jesus calls him Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. I think that's interesting because if you look back in chapter 1 verse 5, John refers to Jesus Christ as the faithful witness. And again, the word there we talked about Sunday, martus, where we get martyr. Jesus is the faithful martyr, and here Jesus calls Antipas by the same designation, the faithful martyr. What a name to share with Jesus. Jesus said in John fifteen eighteen, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And Smyrna could readily agree. The prophetic Smyrna across those first 300 years of the church was not like the world, but was different, Christ-like, and so persecuted, living in the world, hated by the world, just as Jesus was hated first by the world. Antipas was one of these who was hated by the world. Oh, beloved by the church, hated by the world, because he would not do what the world, what the culture did. He would not worship Caesar. It said that when the procurator stood before Antipas, he said, Antipas, if you refuse to worship Caesar, then the whole world will be against you. And Antipas replied, then I am against the whole world. His name, Antipas, means against all. Against all. Which is why some think that Antipas is actually more of a nickname than an actual name. I even found one reference that suggested that possibly Antipas was a nickname for Timothy. Which would be interesting. Although Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. So I'm not sure that that fits. We don't know who Antipas was. But we know, we know how he was killed. We go back to the altar of Zeus. Up on top of the altar of Zeus was what they called the fire altar. And it was a huge, hollow, bronze bull. What they did was they took the victim, the human sacrifice, for Zeus. And they bound them with ropes and they placed them inside this hollow bronze bull. With the head of the victim actually resting inside the head of the bull. So can you imagine that? So they're put inside the bull and then... A blazing fire was lit underneath this bronze bull, and the victim literally roasted to death. They had special pipes that were designed inside the bull, so that as the victim screamed and moaned and yelled, the sounds would echo out through the mouth of the bull and actually look as though the bull itself were alive. And that's how they killed Antipas. Fried alive in a huge brass bull. 
But in the martyrdom of Antipas, it is said that rather than screams and moans coming out of the mouth of the bull, all they could hear were prayers for the church. Antipas, my faithful witness. Tertullian, who we've quoted many times in his Apologeticus, verse 50, said, We multiply whenever we are mown down. The blood of the martyrs is seed. Now, I've shared the last half of that sentence, but I haven't shared the first half. I like that. We multiply whenever we're mown down. So bring out the church mowers because you're just going to cause us to spread. Now, Antipas was killed early on, which is why Jesus said, you were faithful to me. I know you were faithful to me in the days of Antipas. You didn't deny my faith in the days of Antipas. Good job, Pergamos. I'm proud of you. You started out well. Well, that was then. During the suffering church, there was great faithfulness. But then by about 312 to 325, things started to look very different. Where is Satan's throne, by the way, right now? Anyone know? It's on earth. It is the world in which we live. Jesus referred three times, John 12.31, 14.30, and 16.11. He referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. This world is the throne of Satan. So we read this letter and we very well could see Jesus saying, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yes, we do. This field, this world, this is the seat of Satan, at least at this point. And so in this letter to the church in the world, it comes as a warning against being the church of the world. We are to be different. When this letter was first written, Jesus gave the key to being different. He said, you hold fast to my name. Note that in verse 13. You hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. The word hold fast, I love the word, it's krateo. You hold fast. We see it, it means to lay hold of or to seize upon. As in Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What's our confession? Jesus Christ. Seize on to the name of Jesus. Hold fast to the name. And we will not then cling to this world, as so many do. Well, now the Lord brings out His sword with what we would call a concerted criticism, picking up in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Balaam, the Nicolaitans in the church. And Jesus says, I object to this marriage. Balaam. Well, you know the story of Balaam. We have actually talked about him a handful of times recently. We read the story of Balaam, the donkey whisperer, in Numbers 24 and 25. I'm not going to go back over it tonight, but we hear his name mentioned three times in the New Testament Scriptures. We've seen these recently in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, where we read of the way of Balaam. What's the way of Balaam? Rebellion. 
You see, God told him not to go, but he wanted to go. And his way was to rebel against God and to go against the will of God. Finally, God relents and allows him to rebel against him because God allows us that choice. But the way of Balaam is rebellion. Secondly, we see him in Jude 11. Jude 11, where we read about the error of Balaam, the way of Balaam's rebellion, the error of Balaam is greed. The whole reason he rebelled against the Lord, the reason why he keeps going back to Balak, king of the Moabites, and and engaging with him is there's money to be made here. There's some coin to be picked up. And so the error of Balaam is greed. But then here we come to Revelation 2.14 and we get the teaching of Balaam. He's rebellious. He's greedy. What exactly was his teaching? And it's fascinating to put this together because Jesus is the one who pieces it together for us. If you go all the way back, and I'll just read it to you, but Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, tells us while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people, that is the Moabites, invited the Israelites to sacrifice to their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. God's people joining themselves with the Baals, worshiping with the Moabites, which was exactly what God told them, I do not want you to do. Whose idea was this for Israel to intermingle with the Moabites? Not only to worship with them and eat with them, but to intermarry with them. Who would come up with such a thing? Revelation. It was Balaam. You don't know that. In Numbers 25, all you get is the outcome of what the Israelites began to do. But it's Jesus who here at the far end of the Bible, at the end of the Bible itself, gives us the revelation and says, no, it was Balaam's teaching that caused Balak and the Moabites to realize, here's how we get Israel. Now note this. Balak and the Moabites, they called on Balaam to curse Israel four times. Balaam couldn't do it. I mean, literally, he wanted to, but he could not curse Israel. All he could do was bless them. Standing up on the high mountain, looking down over the camp of Israel, he could not curse, he could only bless. So what do you do? How do we take out? The Moabites were too small to actually fight and destroy Israel. They couldn't fight them. What do we do? What do we do, Balaam? I got an idea. What you do is you invite them to dinner. Break bread. Have a hamburger with them. And by the way, while you're eating, bring your daughters in. Yeah, those Israelite men have been out in the desert with the same women for a long time. Bring some new, fresh ladies before them. And the Israelites began to see this and like this and connect themselves to this. They came to the feast. They started to worship the gods because really what harm is there? We're not denying Jehovah. We're just saying we're going to worship Jehovah and Baal. And they intermarried and they joined themselves physically, sexually with the daughters of Moab. And it was Balaam's idea. The teaching of Balaam is this. Get this. The teaching of compromise. Infiltration by compromise. If you can't beat them, get them to join you. What had God told Israel? Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. You shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. 
Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. God warned them at Mount Sinai and Israel turns around and right when they get to Moab do exactly what God warned them not to do. The Lord loves His people so much. The Lord loves you and me so much. He's always offering warning that we not go down certain roads. That's why the triad of warnings, those three kingdom parables are so important for us today. That we don't want to be the church of the mustard seed that just kind of embraces the culture. Now God's going to call out to Israel again. In Revelation 18, verse 4, it says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Now we're about to get into the deeper prophetic stuff here. It's pretty interesting. But before we do, i got to give you, I want to remind you that there is a personal angle here as well. There's always a personal angle, right, in these letters. While they're historic and prophetic and corporate for the whole church, every one of these letters applies to me. Every one of these letters I read and say, Ah, Lord, teach me, train me, sanctify me by what you're saying right here. The objectionable marriage is a marriage of compromise. You know what the opposite of a compromised life is in this world? It's a pure heart. A pure heart. Jesus said in Matthew 5.8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How do I remain pure in my marriage? I keep my eyes on my wife and no other women. How do I remain pure in my relationship with Jesus? I keep my eyes on Him and He is the lone sole focus of all my life and my worship. And that's how we keep a pure heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, prophetically speaking, going back to about 300 to 600 A.D., when the world was against the church... Prior to that time, the suffering church, when the world was against the church and the church was different than the world, what happened? She grew up big and strong. She sank roots deep. The the church spread and grew like wildfire even when thrown into the fire. But around 300 things started to get, well, mixed up. Mustard and leaven got spread all over that good wheat. And the church began to do some different things. Like the pagan world round about, the church began to shroud itself in mystery. That, that ought not be the way things are. We're not to be mysterious. Someone wants to know what we teach at the bridge? <laughs> Here it is. What we believe should be out there and available for anybody to hear. We are not about the mystery. We're about revelation. Amen? And so the church began to do this, become mysterious. In fact, the church became more and more Roman and less and less Christian. In 300, in the church, prayers for the dead were introduced along with the sign of the cross after every prayer. Started out as a good idea. I mean, hey, you know, this kind of... I mean, it's... it's, I'm just honoring the cross. I'm honoring Jesus when I pray. Someone started this. It began to catch catch on and people did this and the sign of the cross became part of what the church did by 375 the church was worshiping worshiping saints and angels 
Not as opposed to Jesus, but in addition to Jesus. By 394, they held the first Mass. In 491, the church began to worship Mary. In 526, by the way, prior to about 312, Roman Catholicism as we know it today is really hard pressed to prove that it has any connection. After about 312, you start to see the connections. 491, Mary was worshipped. 526, the doctrine of extreme unction, that is, the last rites began to be used. By 600, worship was conducted only in Latin, the language of Rome, right? And the Bible was now chained to the pulpit. Only the priest could read the Bible. Only the priest could bring the Mass or bring the teaching out of the Latin Scriptures and the common people were now divided out or kept away from the Scriptures. And at that same time, prayer itself was directed to and through Mary. This was just 600 years into the church age, my friends, and we'll talk more about where that went next week. But how did that happen? (laughs) How How did this pure persecuted church end up so lazy and lethargic and embracing the culture and the world. In 312, a new leader was coming to power. The last reign of the last persecuting emperor of Rome, Diocletian. Remember I told you Sunday, Diocletian, after ten waves of persecution, Diocletian persecuted the church, ravaging them for ten years. And at the end of that time, Diocletian met his demise. He died. And so a new leader, in fact, there was a triad of leaders that kind of rose up there in Rome, and they were somewhat working together. But that never works out well, and Rome itself was on the brink of civil war, east to west. And so of that triad, two really began to rise up, and one was a politically savvy leader recognizing a huge untapped voter block. He was great at big conventions. He spoke loudly. People listened. And this untapped voter block were all the Christians in the Roman Empire. All those who had been persecuted. People without a voice, if you will. The forgotten men and women of Rome. And so this leader stood up and said, wait a minute, hey, I I had a vision. And he claimed to have a vision of a fiery cross in the sky. And he said he heard a voice saying, in this sign, conquer. And his name was Constantine. And Constantine rose then to power ascribing and calling in the the Christians throughout the empire who aligned with him. You know what? Why wouldn't you? They were persecution weary. They were exhausted. And the idea of a leader who would fight for them sounded really good. History can tend to repeat itself. In 311 A.D., as part of that tetrarchy I mentioned, three leaders together over Rome, Constantine, along with two others, signed the Edict of Toleration, which ended state persecution of Christianity. What a relief. Wonderful. The laws are working for us. The state is on our side. And then in 313 A.D., Constantine signed the Edict of Milan, which recognized for the first time Christianity as a legal, a legal, not the, but a legal religion in Rome. And things began to radically change for the church. The elevated marriage. Hey, things are good now. 
We finally arrived. This is kingdom worthy stuff. By 380 AD, after Constantine came the Edict of Thessalonica as the church became the official state religion of Rome. Not one of many, but the religion. This is the one that you must accept as a citizen of Rome. What you could say about the church is at that time it became the bride of the Roman state. Well, who would object to a marriage like that? How about the groom? How about Jesus Himself? To whom the bride was betrothed. The church. His church. No wonder He shows up at Pergamos with a sword that is sharp and two-edged. Constantine's rise marked the beginning of the church's descent into the Dark Ages. Jesus said in John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, well then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Brothers and sisters, again I say, our hope will never be in a human political leader. Ever. No matter who it is. We have had presidents throughout my lifetime. We've had different presidents that I've really liked and we've had presidents that I have not liked at all. We've had presidents that I, for the most part, truly agreed with and those I did not. But there's no difference among any of them in that they are not my Savior or yours. Politics will not save us. That's our hope. And it doesn't matter how dynamic a leader is. It doesn't matter how religious he or she may seem. George W. Bush, who I believe was a born-again Christian, was the first president to have a copy of the Koran displayed in the White House. That bothers me. Did then? Still does. <laughs> My hope is not in politics. By the way, it was also in the 4th century, around this time of Constantine, when theologians such as Augustine began to trade out biblical premillennialism for unbiblical postmillennialism. That's when it happened. When the church began to say, things are getting good. Hey, perhaps, perhaps we've misread. Maybe what the Bible describes about this premillennial, that is Jesus is going to come and Jesus is going to establish His kingdom and Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years. Maybe we misread that. Maybe it's metaphorical. And what we're really talking about here is that the church will establish the kingdom, grow the kingdom, maintain the kingdom, and after a thousand years, Jesus will show up. Or, you know, a, a metaphorical amount of time, Jesus will come and we'll say, look at what we have for you, Lord. Look at what we've done for you. That's post-millennialism. Premillennial thought. And I'm not just trying to sell you on a theological concept. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. Literally, the Bible teaches pre-millennial return of Jesus. He comes back, He establishes the kingdom, and off we go. That's what the Scriptures say. But post-millennialism began to rise up in the 4th century. And by the way, what that meant for Israel was that the church began to say, all the promises that were yours, they're ours. All the curses, you can have those. But we are now the owners of the promise. This was the age of the elevated church state. The marriage of church and state. The compromise of the church with Rome, with the world. Well, coming into power, 
Constantine did what all politicians do. He placated. He compromised for his constituents. He wanted to stay in power, of course. And so he had all these Christians that helped him come to power, but he still had a lot of pagans. He didn't want to turn them off. Come on, Christians, we got to work with the pagans. The pagans are working with you, you know. So let's, let's come together in all of this. And in 314, Constantine minted a coin. It's on display in the British Archaeological Museum. On one side is etched the cross. And on the other side, the form of Jupiter, the god of Rome. Jupiter and the cross back to back? Listen, whether it was the Greek gods or the Baals or Asherah or Molech or Vishnu or Allah or the self if you're a Buddhist, whatever gods are the flavor of the month, Gaia, if you're into earth worship, I'm not saying any of you are, but whatever the divine flavor of the season All of the false religions of the world have the same roots. They all go back to the Babylonian mystery religion, which, as I told you before, had two seats, Rome and Pergamos. Babylonian mystery religion. Revelation 17.5 talks about it. It says, On her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. If you'd like to, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. I want to show you where this Babylonian mystery religion began and why it had such a hold in the paganism of Constantine. I thought Constantine was a Christian. Well, the Greek Orthodox would agree with you then. I think Constantine was a politician. Constantine refused to be baptized, by the way, until he was on his deathbed, and then he said, okay, do it. You know, just in case. Now, did Constantine have faith? I don't know. But I know he had politics, and I know how he knew how to play the realm, and he had the pagans and he had the Christians mixing together and working together and living together. It was a big old coexist thing. It was marvelous. Genesis chapter 10 tells us where this Babylonian mystery religion begins. If you look at verse 8, now Cush became the father of Nimrod. And he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Before the Lord is a soft way of saying what's actually being said there. Which is, Nimrod was a mighty hunter against the Lord. In the face of the Lord. For the word there translated before is lifne. In Hebrew, lifne, which means against or in the face of. Nimrod was one who would get all up in the face of the Lord. A mighty hunter who was against the Lord. Well, what did he do? Verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And Erech and Akkad and Calneh in the land of Shinar, which is the land of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Ultimately, from that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth-ir and Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city and goes on and talks about his offspring and, and what he did. But specifically, we see this Nimrod who built Babylon. Nimrod, history tells us, was the founder of the first pagan religion in the world there at Babel. Babylonian mystery religion. We will hear more about it when we get further into Revelation. But Nimrod, history tells us, married a woman named Semiramis. 
Semiramis became queen of Babylon, reigning with great power and great evil. The story goes, Nimrod was off. Either there, there are two versions of it. Either he was off at battle and got killed, or he was killed by a wild boar. I like the wild boar story, so we'll go with that one. Nimrod's killed, and suddenly, miraculously, Semiramis stands up and says, I'm pregnant. Isn't it wonderful? It's a miracle. I lost my husband, but now I have a child. And my husband wasn't here, so it's a miraculous birth. And so she conceived a child, and the child's name was, anyone know? Tammuz. Tammuz. Should that mean something to me, Pastor? Well, to this day, the name Tammuz remains on the Hebrew calendar. It's the fourth month of the Hebrew calendar. Tammuz. Why would Tammuz be on the Hebrew calendar? Because the Hebrew calendar was developed when the Jews were in Babylon. Tammuz of Babylon, the legend that goes all the way back, his mother Semiramis, this miraculous birth, she has this little baby boy, Tammuz. You can also, by the way, find the name of Tammuz in the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14. He brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house. That's the Jerusalem temple. Ezekiel is having a vision because Ezekiel himself is in Babylon and he's having this vision of Jerusalem and of the temple and he's being brought there. He says, He brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house which was toward the north and behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. What? What are Jewish women sitting at the north gate of the temple doing weeping for Tammuz 1,500 years after Nimrod and Semiramis and the whole story of Tammuz. What's this all about? Well, it was around the time of the winter solstice and this miracle child, Tammuz, died. He was killed by a wild boar. And in his death, Babylonian legend says he came back to life. And to celebrate, well, they would gather around the fire... And they would worship over a log. They set a special log in the fire. The log was to represent Tammuz. The log was named after the Chaldean word for child, which is Yule. The Yule log. And they'd sit around the fire and celebrate Yule tide by the fireside. <laughs> the next day, they would go out in the morning and cut down an evergreen tree. They'd prop it up and decorate it to signify the resurrection of Tammuz. I'm just here to spoil your holidays. <laughs> Interesting. Jeremiah chapter 10 refers to this custom. Verse 3. For the customs of the peoples are delusion. Because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool, and they decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. I read that and I was reminded of Sam the Snowman in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer as he sings silver and gold. Silver and gold. (laughs) Means so much more when I see silver and gold decorations on every Christmas tree. Oh, it gets worse, my friends. (laughs) The pagan celebration to honor and deify Tammuz continues to this very day, but it's called Saturnalia. 
Saturnalia. Well, I thought that was for the Roman god Saturn, or the Greek god Saturn. Yeah, which draws back to the Babylonian pagan religion and Tammuz. Saturnalia, celebrated by many. In fact, it's increasing in its interest in America and around the world. There is a return to Saturnalia. I mean, I guess someone needs a festivist for the rest of us. December, December 17th to 23, and the point, again, is the deification of Tammuz. Hey, this is Pergamus. Prophetically, Pergamus is revealing this to us, showing us this, this teaching of Balaam, the teaching of compromise. And even of the Nicolaitans, haven't even gotten to them. But in, instead of Saturnalia... Constantine and the, and the boys of the 4th century, they said, hey, let's compromise. Because we've got all these pagans here. We've got to do something for them. And besides, how embedded in the culture is the celebration of little Tammuz? We can't just throw that away. Can you imagine just getting rid of American holidays that we have? Could you, could you give up Thanksgiving? Not me. Now, anywhere where food is involved with the holiday, I'm in. <laughs> Hey, let's, instead of Saturnalia, let, let, let's, because we have, we've got all these Christians, we've got all these pagans, let's work together. Let's celebrate the Christ Mass. And, and we'll keep the Yuletide by the fireside and the decorated trees and the candle and the mystery of it all. By the way, the pagan priests, they need jobs. You know, so let's just make them pastors. And they can, they can stay in the whole religion thing, that's fine. They can continue functioning and working in the temples. And the, the pagan temples, the basilicas, see a basilica was the name of a pagan temple. We'll just now call it, I don't know, St. Paul's Basilica. Or Peter's. We'll just make some, you know, some adjustments, some cultural changes. Have I completely ruined your holidays yet? In the words of the late 20th century theologian Kevin McAllister, you can mess with a lot of things, but you can't mess with a kid on Christmas. Besides the fact, don't we in all this, don't we have a Christmas Eve service at the bridge every year, Pastor, for 15 years? You've been holding those. I happen to know you're trying to get the wood done on the stage so that you can get those Christmas decorations up. Rick, what's the deal? Hey, we'll talk about that very soon, but stay with me. The objection of Jesus to this whole idea of the elevated cultural church is a solemn warning against compromise. And I will ask you this question about the holiday season ahead of us. Does your Christmas celebration compromise with a little worship of Tammuz on the side? Or does your Christmas celebration encourage faith in Jesus Christ? If it's the latter, i got no problem with it. If you're setting up a Christmas tree in your house to worship Tammuz, let's talk. But if you're worshiping Jesus, if you're recognizing the miracle, the true, the only true miraculous birth in history, that of Jesus Christ, the real miracle of the virgin birth, well, that's, that's marvelous. The warning here is against spiritual compromise. And when we look back at the history of the church, prophetically from John's perspective, but historically from us, when we look at that 300-year period, we see compromise after compromise after compromise. And it was for political power and cultural comfort and even religious relevancy in the culture. Hey, now we're relevant. 
Now that people are coming to us, that's a great place to be. Oh, hey, by the way, you know, I, I said let's keep the Babylonian pagan priests. Just give them a job as a pastor. By the way, I was never a pagan before this, so we're good. But do you know what the name was? Going back centuries before the church, the name of the high priest of the Babylonian mystery religion was, get this, Pontifex Maximus. That wasn't first ascribed to the Pope. That was ascribed to the pagan priests of Babylonian mystery religion. In verse 15, you've got some there who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We talked about the Nicolaitans, remember them? The apostolic church, Ephesus, hated the Nicolaitans, would not allow them in. The suffering church had no time for the Nicolaitans, too much persecution. But by 312 A.D., the 4th century, as the elevated church rose to power, they held Jesus' name in one hand and Nicolaitan philosophy in the other hand. What's Nicolaitan philosophy? The teaching of the Nicolaitans came with a hierarchy. Nikos, meaning conquer or power over, and and laity, the people, it was all about power of the priesthood over the people, over the laity. And we see that beginning after 300. Prior to that, pastor was just a pastor. Prior to that, it was brothers and sisters. In fact, prior to that, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. No other mediators. There were no priests in between us and the Lord anymore. Just one, Jesus Christ. While Rome was out there worshiping the Caesars, the man-gods, the church was worshiping the God-man, the one mediator. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race. You, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. What did John write in Revelation 1.6? He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And one of the biggest problems with this church-state idea is that it draws Christians off message. By the way, i got to insert this. I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to say it. We were talking today about, um, uh, about Brandy's plan, ladies, for mentoring, for older Christian sisters to mentor younger Christian sisters. And, and we were talking about this a little bit. And Brandy's already run into some trouble. You know what the trouble is? She's got tons of younger Christian sisters who want mentors. But she doesn't have very many older Christian sisters who are willing to mentor. Well, I'm not, I'm not trained to disciple someone. I don't have the, you know, the, the, the teach. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just one of the many here at the Bridge Fellowship. Ladies, may I remind you that you are a royal priesthood. And sisters of whatever age, May I remind you that whether you think of yourself as a Bible scholar or not, you have something to offer your younger sisters. They would love to talk to you about how do I deal with this husband of mine. They would love to hear what do I do when my kids are, are, are you know not listening to me. They would love to talk what is it like to be in your 40s or 50s or 60s following Jesus for a young woman in her 20s. They want to know. 
You have so much to give, you royal priesthood sisters of mine, so get with it. (laughs) We are all part of this royal priesthood. But man, when we get political, when we get comfortable, when we try to be culturally relevant, we get off message. We are not here to save America with the Constitution. We are here to save people with the Gospel. That's our call. I'm not saying don't vote. I did vote. I'm not saying don't have an opinion. I had one. I'm not saying don't stand up for morals and values that are godly and right. But what I'm saying is don't get off message. Don't compromise. Well, I may not be able to go to Bible study, but I'm involved politically. Wonderful for you. But we have a message. And that's why Jesus shows up at Pergamos with the sword of His mouth. By the way, remember how Balaam died? Anyone know? He was run through by the sword. The sons of Israel ran Balaam, the false prophet, through with the sword, Joshua 13.22. The word kills compromise. Sword of the word's powerful, man. Which is why I love the Word of God so much and why we're in it so much. Man, the more I'm in the Word, the less I'm willing to compromise with the world. Right? So we have this this sword that divides between soul and spirit. The soul likes to be massaged. The soul likes to hear the things of the world. Spirit once desires God, wants to be with Jesus. The sword divides it out so that we can hear correctly. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what the sword of the Word does. And the Word redirects us to the one thing, to our power and to our real purpose in this country and in the world. God said, not by might. Not by power, but by my Spirit, Zechariah 4.6. That's how you're going to get it done. 2 Corinthians 4.7, Paul wrote, We have this treasure in earth and vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God. And not from ourselves. So we come to the clear correction of Jesus in verse 16. Therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And again we hear Jesus call, repent. 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 The word is metanoisin, which means change your mind. If you're compromising, if you're sliding, if you're embracing cultural Christianity... Change your mind. Turn to Him. Repent. A day is coming, by the way. A tragic day. A day that I call the point of no repentance. You'll read about it in Revelation 9, verse 20, which says, The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and brass and of stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear, nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their immorality or their thefts. Over in Revelation 16, verse 9. 
says, men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent, so as to give Him glory. Plagues are coming down. Stuff is happening, and the world looks up and says, we won't repent. No! We will not return to you. We won't change our minds. And then in verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Folks, listen, we will hit a point as we study through. You get to the latter half, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, and humanity will no longer repent. Not because God wouldn't still save. He would, but they won't. And here Jesus says to the compromising church early on, repent. Change your mind. Stop marrying yourselves to the world. Stop the compromise. Repent, repent, repent. Because family, brothers and sisters, we do not want to end up on the wrong side of the war. Therefore, verse 16, repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I love that he doesn't say, I'm coming to you quickly and I'm going to make war against you. No. I will make war against them. Who? Those who don't repent. Those who compromise. Those who embrace the world and the culture and the world systems as somehow as if they could save us. No, repent. Because I am coming to make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, just one. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear what? Hear the coming confirmation that Jesus says in verse 17. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. That is his postscript to Pergamos, and we'll talk about what it means on Sunday. But here we are. And the question that remains for us tonight is will we be pure of heart or will we compromise? Historically, the church compromised. Corporately, you can look across 2,000 years even to the church today and see many, many examples of compromise. Prophetically, compromise happened. The mustard seed grew into this great size of a tree and the birds made nests all throughout compromise what about personally are you compromising your faith this is the tough one this is the one I think we need to be pushed on I do where have I compromised ask yourself right now were there things a year ago two years ago that you would have said morally no to are there things in your life that you you didn't tolerate because you love Jesus too much that you've kind of, well, but all my friends are into this. I got people at church that are into this and they, they do this and I don't know, it gets tiring sometimes being persecuted. Personally, have you compromised? Are there areas, are there issues in our lives of compromise? Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Father, I pray that You will teach us and continue to challenge us. Boy, especially this week and next week. (laughs) There's a lot here. 
that really runs against the grain of the cultural, easygoing, compromising, tolerating, world-embracing church. Lord, we are to be certainly a people of great love. A people known by our love. Our love for one another and our love for a lost and dying world. We are looking at the tares and praying that they might make a decision. Be born again and become wheat. We, we want those birds that are coming into the branches to hear the message and the truth of Jesus Christ. But you have told us by your parables there comes a time when the leaven makes its way all the way through the loaf. And we don't want to be leavened. We do not want to be sinful. A people of love, of compassion, of tenderness and gentleness. A people of grace. And a people who are holy and righteous and pure. A people of truth. Jesus, you are of grace and of truth. You're both. And I pray that over us tonight, that as we consider these things, we would be a people of grace and truth. Lord, convict where we need conviction. Challenge where we need to be challenged. Drive out the compromise and make us wholly yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up and sing together.